Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 15, The Unbreakable Vow. Snow was swirling against the icy windows once more. Christmas was approaching fast. Hagrid had already single-handedly delivered the usual twelve Christmas trees for the Great Hall. Garlands of holly and tinsel had been twisted around... I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week we're doing a special shout-out to the fabulous Harry Potter and the Sacred Text local group in Vancouver, Canada, run by Electra Torgerson, who... I think has the best name I've ever heard. Although we do think that the Vancouver group could use a name as awesome as Electra's. So if you have ideas of Harry Potter related puns that could be worked into the Vancouver Harry Potter and the Sacred Text group's name, feel free to email us or them by visiting harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. So Casper, as you know, I had surgery about a year ago now. Hmm. And my mom came to take care of me after surgery And my mom is just somebody who self-sacrifices a lot. And I wasn't awake a lot while she was visiting, but I was awake some. And I was obsessed with the idea of watching Mamma Mia 2 with her. (laughs) My mom and I both loved the first Mamma Mia. I loved the second Mamma Mia. It's very much about a mother-daughter's love. And I was like, The thing I want is to watch Mamma Mia 2 with you. In fact, I was so obsessed with it that the last thing I said as I was wheeled into surgery was, can we listen to the Mamma Mia 2 soundtrack to my surgeon? That is how much it was on my mind. And my mom is just such a self-sacrificing person that the whole time that she was visiting me, she gave herself projects around my apartment which is like so nice. But I would wake up and I'd be like, mom, come to bed and let's watch Mamma Mia too. And she would say, oh, sweetie, I'll be there in 45 minutes. I just need to finish, I don't know, alphabetizing your silverware or whatever it was she was doing. And she ended up leaving without us having watched Mamma Mia too. And I think she just is so used to making sacrifices for me that It didn't seem like the right thing to do to lie in bed and watch a movie with me. I do think the sacrifice is beautiful. She made a sacrifice by coming on a plane at the last minute and taking care of me. She left my house about 8,000 times more organized than she came to it. She is just somebody who gives and gives. But I think that once sacrificing becomes our identity, we can lose sight of really important things like Mamma Mia 2. 
And so I'm excited to talk to you about that idea of sacrifice and when it becomes too much a part of our identity that it becomes almost a kind of martyrdom. See, Vanessa, I think you've got this all wrong. Yes, your mom sacrificed to come to you. And yes, she sacrificed time and effort to look after you. But not watching Mamma Mia 2, I'm not sure it's a sacrifice. Interesting. (laughs) You think maybe she was avoiding watching Mamma Mia 2. She's like, that movie, I already enjoyed one of them. I'm not going to be made to sit through another one. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, but I, I do know what you mean. I think there's so much about giving ourselves permission to stop. And especially when we're in a caregiving role, there's something about kind of just needing to always be ready to be giving care and kind of turning off that that role is really hard to do, I think. I think sacrifice, I hope, is about moments of sacrifice rather than a lifetime of sacrifice. Oh, I love that. Yeah, moments of sacrifice, not an identity of sacrifice. Well, Vanessa, before we dig into sacrifice as our theme this week, let's share a 30-second recap to remind one another what happened in this chapter 15 of book six, The Huffler Prince. Okay, Casper, on your mark, get set, go. Okay, so we're getting ready for the Slug Club party, which now has become like the event of the year because there's all these celebrities coming and the vampire Rufus Scrimger is coming, according to Luna. And um, Romilda Vane is like on it. She's like, Harry is my man. I'm going to get him. He ends up asking Luna. She's thrilled and then just has this beautiful disarming moment. And um, then at the party, Draco like tries to break in and we don't know why. And then Snape tells him like, come with me. And Harry like sneaks out to overhear that confrontation. And Snape says, I made an unbreakable vow. That's kind of it. I'm not sure there's anything left, love. <laughs> I'll do my best to find one or two things. <laughs> okay. All right. 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So Hermione tells Harry that girls are um, talking about um, love potioning him, like attacking him. Um, Hermione and Harry have this really cute moment where they're like guessing that the librarian and Filch have like a (laughs) secret love affair and I love it so much and then the other big thing that happens is that McClagan like sexually assaults Hermione she comes out with her hair ruffled and is like he's a monster and it's just absolutely terrible 30 seconds so real so Vanessa we're exploring this theme of sacrifice which It was surprising. Reading this chapter, I was like, oh, get ready, everyone. I'm going to find sacrifice everywhere. Because this whole series is just predicated on so much sacrifice. Of course, Lily, most importantly, but also Dumbledore and Sirius and Snape and and Harry himself, most famously at the very end of the books. But I actually struggled to really find clear examples of it in this chapter. So I'm curious where you would like us to go. Yeah, I think let's start with the trio. They are Mm. in this really fraught moment where I feel like a lot of little sacrifices are being made of like Harry sacrificing his opinion and just sitting there silently Mm. because he says, you know, the text says that he really wanted to maintain both of his relationships with Ron and Hermione and therefore like got really good at being quiet. Right. And then Ron and Hermione are sacrificing their friendship for the sake of this fight, at least temporarily. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, Hermione comes back into the scene, right? We'd left them with the with the bird attack of last week. And then Hermione comes back to Ron, just very overt about the fact that she's got someone who's coming to Slughorn's party with her. Of course, Ron wasn't invited in the first place. So she's she's made a calculated attack. And she is 
brutal. I mean, she's chosen McLagan, this other keeper who didn't win the tryouts because Hermione confounded him. She's stressing like, oh, I only go out with good Quidditch players and all of this kind of stuff. And it seems like there's something reckless about both of them at this point. Obviously, Ron with Lavender, you know, last week had been very kind of public about making out together at this at this party in the common room. And there's a kind of just a spiral, which I'm not sure it's sacrifice. And this is the point I want to make, which is like, it seems mean-spirited or it seems maybe even ill-thought-through and sacrifice I don't know, there's something noble in it for me, which may be an incorrect association, but there's something about like a bigger goal that's worthy and therefore you're laying down something that you love or most drastically, you're kind of laying down your life for it. And what the trio are doing, especially Ron and Hermione, it just feels, it doesn't feel honorable. Yeah, I think that sacrifice often shouldn't feel like sacrifice. It should feel like love, right? Mm. That in the story about my mom, like... She didn't feel like she was sacrificing Mamma Mia to whether or not she wanted to see it. She felt like she was just doing acts of love for me. And so I guess I agree with you that maybe what Hermione is up to isn't a sacrifice. It does not just feel like a loving act. She's not willing to make a sacrifice by being out with McClagan. She's she's willing to put herself in harm's way. And I'm not victim blaming her. McClagan is a rapey jerk and takes advantage of her. But... She's willing to not respect herself in order to make a point. You know what I'm taken back to is the very end of book one when we see the trio kind of go through their Ur experience, right? That first confrontation to get the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone. And the person who really sacrifices himself there is Ron on the chessboard. Yeah. And and so there's something interesting here about like he makes a choice. He's like, the only way we can get Harry through is for me to essentially be slain on this chessboard. And he gets knocked out, right? It's like still pretty violent. And I think in that moment, we see the trio all have a bigger picture of what's happening and what's important. And they're therefore willing to make these kind of choices. And I'm suddenly seeing that the the absence of an immediate crisis or the, the absence of, of Voldemort's presence I think maybe that's contributing to the difficult personal dynamics at play between the trio here, because if there was an attack right now by Death Eaters, my God, they would have each other's backs in no time. But because there's no kind of needy sacrifice on that big scale in this moment, they're playing out these smaller dramas, which feel very big, and they they are in some ways, but like real sacrifice, it's instilled when we have to confront the ultimate, right? That the most meaningful, the most terrifying and the most difficult like that's that's when things become easy to make a decision like that right like your daughter is sick and going through surgery like you're going to fly across the country no question doesn't matter if you had appointments or you had deadlines right like it's so clear what's important and i think it's the absence of that kind of clarity that leads them into this morass of relational confusion and pain and and so my question is i guess can we call it sacrifice when they are at that petty level or does it demand those kind of bigger, ultimate, life-defining moments? Such a good question. Because we do we do use phrases like, oh, we all have to make small sacrifices, right? We think about, I'm, my brain immediately goes to the Second World War, right? Like people used rations, and so it was just what everyone had to do. And it totally influences your life, just like this whole romantic triangle, whatever shape it is now, quadrangle, <laughs> is, is absolutely impacting their lives. So I don't want to minimize that, but like... 
Right. I mean, and then my question with rationing is, is that a sacrifice if you don't have a choice? Oh, yes. Right? Like that's just an imposed system. That's not a choice of sacrifice. I just have this like theological ideal of sacrifice where it has to almost be quiet and you have to have like almost no reward for it and it has to be a choice. You have to do it willingly. Yeah, I think that's really true. Yeah, I mean, we can move to like Draco and Snape, right? Like Draco is not making a sacrifice. He has been given an assignment. Well, and that's what I suddenly thought about Snape as well. Like I've always seen Snape as a sacrificial character because, you know, for the love of Lily, he's living this double life. But on the other hand, like, Maybe this isn't a choice that Snape has. Maybe Snape's only option is either Death Eater or Death if he rejects Dumbledore. So, ugh. Oh, Casper, it's such a good point. I mean, now we're getting into like some, you know, philosophical idea about whether or not any of us have any will or we're just, you know, running around doing the best we can in very limited situations. (laughs) I am willing very much to see Snape as a sacrificial character, as somebody who is willing to put himself in harm's way Mm -hmm. for the thing that he has decided to care about. Can we zoom in on their interaction at the end of the chapter? Because I think this is where we can learn something. I mean, we learned that Draco has been avoiding Snape, right? Snape has been asking him to come to his office. Draco's not been doing it. Demanding. Demanding, right? He's like, I would never let anyone else get away with the kind of, you know, insubordination that that you've been showing. And then the reveal moment is when Draco says something like, I don't want you to steal my glory, right? And of course, we know that's not true. But I wonder if there's something about this interaction between Snape and Draco, which actually reveals not just Snape's responsibility of like, well, I made an unbreakable vow. So like, I have to help you. Otherwise, I'm going to seriously suffer. But if there's also some actual, not parental, but certainly mentoring love from Snape to Draco, like he can see Draco is suffering. His face is ashen. Clearly something is wrong. He looks ill is what we hear in the text. Do you think there is some sort of protective love from Snape, which is saying basically, I don't want you to sacrifice yourself because I know it's not worth it. Yeah, I think it's so hard to tell whether he is doing this because of the plot with Dumbledore or what it is. But I I do think it is in part love for Draco. And I also, I don't believe Draco for a second that he is saying, you're going to steal my glory. Really? Oh, no. I think Draco is terrified. And I think Voldemort said he had to do it alone. And he feels like he has to do it alone. And so he is just throwing daggers to see what is going to stick, right? Like he's flailing wildly trying to see what will get Snape off his back. He's like, I've tried not showing up. I've tried being disrespectful. Like he is just accusing however he can. But I think that Draco, you know, to this conversation is not making a sacrifice. He Mm -hmm. has been forced to sacrifice. He's not even a sacrificial lamb, right? Like he's a victim. He is just a victim right now. And he's scared. He's trying to get his dad out of jail. He's trying to survive. But it's interesting because he keeps stressing, you know, Snape asks him, what's your plan? He's like, it's none of your business, but I'm not alone, you know, and he talks about Crabbe and Goyle, but he's also alluding to these other helpers that he might have, which also made me think about that sacrifice. I often think about it as a lone move, but you also think about, you know, the front line in a battle situation, the people who charge first, who are pretty much sure to die on the battlefield. And so 
yeah, I'm just also thinking about the difference between a solo and a communal sacrifice here. Yeah, and that makes me think whether or not I see what Draco is doing as a sacrifice or as him being forced into this position, I think he's reframed it for himself oh, that's as interesting. sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so part of his not being alone is this sense of a higher call. Mm. He feels as though he's doing this for his father and that he is sacrificing everything in order to appease the Dark Lord for their family. And I guess to some extent what we're seeing here is that Draco is very much like his mother and not like his father. I think Lucius would very quickly sacrifice his family to please Voldemort. But we know that Narcissa is unwilling to and will betray Voldemort for her son. And I think that we're seeing that same instinct in Draco where he is going to tell himself, I am sacrificing myself for my family. I mean, what he's doing there is meaning making, right? When we get put in a position yeah. which seems impossible and we find a way to make it meaningful. And I feel harsh <laughs> saying that about Draco, but that's what we do. I guess that's why I'm so scared of sacrifice. It's yeah. this story that, to use Draco's language, we start telling ourselves about glory. And and he can't get out of it. I mean, that that's yeah. that's, I think, you're so right. That's what's dangerous about the sacrifice stories. And perhaps this is kind of relates back to your opening story with your mom. It's like when we get stuck in that story as our identity, then it feels like there's no way out. And for Draco, right, there is no way out. He confronts Dumbledore at the end of this book, and he can't do the core thing that he has been told he has to do. Oh, I'm really getting why you're suspicious of those sacrifice narratives, because there's something scary about it. You just help me realize what it is. I hate sacrifice because I think it is a narrative that is sold in order to exploit people. Like, make a sacrifice for your country. I just think that the word sacrifice is often used as such a tool of manipulation Mm. and oppression Mm. and a way to take advantage of people who are weaker and give them a sense of meaning for meaningless tasks or for tasks that are actually doing the bidding of the more powerful. You know, I I do think that there are good sacrifices, but I think that we have to make sure that when we think of things as sacrifice, that we are entirely in charge of that narrative. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice. It's an abuse. So, Vanessa, elsewhere in this chapter, kind of earlier on, when Harry is navigating kind of all these lovely young women who want to go to this party with him, he ends up asking Luna. And she is characteristically both delighted and surprised and has lots to talk about that just is not true, including saying like, oh, the vampire will be there, Rufus Scrimger, who's of course the Minister of Magic. And it was so interesting to me to see Harry respond differently to Luna in this moment than we've seen him respond before. Usually he's kind of either bewildered by her accuracy of something, or he's kind of like laughing at her because the ideas are so silly, right? And we get get a little bit of that, like he's glad she's not wearing radish earrings to the party and that kind of stuff. But by and large, he stays completely quiet to her kind of unusual theories, both at the party and beforehand. It seemed like a mature friendship, right? Like there are things that when we're with people that we love and we kind of, I don't want to say overlook their faults, but essentially we sacrifice maybe how we would react to other people when it's with our friends. And I guess I want to ask, is that a a sacrifice of integrity or is it a loving gesture? Is it both? Like, how how does sacrifice show up there for you? Yeah, I think it's sacrifice that 
is love, right? I think eventually you even stop seeing the quote unquote embarrassing things. <laughs> like you're just like, yeah, this is the person I love. That's weird about them. I guess I think love and sacrifice do go hand in hand, but love doesn't make sacrifice feel like sacrifice anymore. Mm. Harry really loves Luna now. Like they've fought in a battle together and she is loyal and awesome and weird in a delightful way. And so he would have only felt the sacrifice a year ago. And now I think that it just doesn't feel like one anymore. It just feels like friendship. Yeah. And again, maybe this takes us back to your your mom's experience. Like it wasn't that she saw it as a sacrifice. Like it was an intentional choice to be like, oh, you know, I don't deserve to watch this movie or something. It was just like, when I'm with you and you're sick, what I do is look after you. Just like Harry's like, when I'm with Luna, she will say things that I think are weird, but I like being <laughs> with her and it's not even a thing I think about anymore. You know what I right. mean? Right. And Luna is the person at Hogwarts, I guess, other than Ginny, who he most wants to ask. Yes. Like, he could ask Ron. He could bring anyone. Right. And at the end of the day, I think he genuinely most wants to spend these hours with Luna. I mean, this is what's so interesting. At the party itself... You know, he doesn't really want to be there. First of all, we know that. And so he's looking for someone who will be just fine on their own <laughs> as well. And we see Luna have this wonderful conversation with Trelawney, right, about some sort of conspiracy theory. There's a self-sufficiency to Luna, which, which I think is perfect in a way that with Ron, he would need to kind of be engaging Ron more. And it's interesting the way he asks her. It's not premeditated. It kind of comes out before he realized he said it. And so there's, there's something about that kind of deeper knowing that this is someone that you just feel safe with and, and good about that it, it, it happens so quickly for him. Yeah, I feel like this is the moment where Luna and Harry really become friends, mm. where Harry is with her and he's just like, I want to go with you. Right, right. And then it's like, oh, I just asked Luna Lovegood to do this. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. And she's still being called Looney. I mean, there's so, there's so much about how she is made fun of and marginalized and and right in a moment when harry is like the kind of like hot guy on campus right like you know his dress robes and all of this and like all the girls want him like that's the moment when he extends a hand to someone who's really been put at the bottom of the pecking order and i don't think he's doing it for that reason no no it's just what he does it's not a sacrifice for him right like it's not like i'm doing a good deed by asking this person it's just like no and it like gets him out of like the awkward romilda vane situation <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so, Casper, we are transitioning to sacred imagination. Yay! And so what I would like everybody to do is, if it is safe to close your eyes to put your feet on the floor firmly, stretch out your toes, and try to see if you can feel each of your toes. Take a deep breath in, and I'm going to invite you into this moment. Maybe be hairy in this moment. We are at the Slug Club Christmas party, and I'm going to read the section to you. And, and Casper, I'm really excited to hear what it is that you notice. I'm definitely not interested, said Harry firmly, and I've just seen a friend of mine. Sorry. He pulled Luna after him into the crowd. 
he had indeed just seen a long mane of brown hair disappear between what looked like two members of the Weird Sisters. Hermione! Hermione! Harry! There you are! Thank goodness! Hi, Luna! What's happened to you? asked Harry, for Hermione looked distinctly disheveled, rather as though she had just fought her way out of a thicket of devil's snare. Oh, I've just escaped. I mean, I've just left Cormac, she said. Under the mistletoe, she added in explanation, as Harry continued to look questioningly at her. Serves you right for coming with him, he told her severely. I thought he'd annoy Ron most, said Hermione dispassionately. I debated for a while about Zacharias Smith, but I thought on the whole. You considered Smith, said Harry, revolted. Yes, I did, and I'm starting to wish I'd chosen him. McClagan makes Grot look like a gentleman. Let's go this way. We'll be able to see him coming. He's so tall. The three of them made their way over to the other side of the room, scooping up goblets of mead on the way, realizing too late that Professor Trelawney was standing there alone. So, Casper, the reason that I picked this is that I think that we see something really human here, which is Hermione is in a situation in which she is being treated horribly and Harry shames her for it. And I think that my first instinct is to judge Harry for that. But instead, what I'm seeing in this moment is that he loves her so much. Sometimes when we love someone, we want to blame them for their own pain because that means that they are in control of it potentially not happening again. Does that make sense? Where it's like, McClagan is being the bad guy here, but there's something about it to me that I guess I just like, I feel for Harry that he he can't change McClagan, but he can talk to Hermione to never do this again. Mm, yeah. It's so interesting because you read that crucial line, something like it's your own fault in a way that I had read it very differently in my head when I read the chapter again. Like I read it in this kind of cautiously teasing way, like serves you right for blah, 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 blah. But I think your way of reading it is probably right. I, th- I think he's angry at Hermione for bringing McLaggen because he knows that it's done to intend to hurt Ron. So that was really interesting for me to like be Harry and kind of say those words in anger and frustration. The physical descriptions really stood out this time. Like I can just imagine her hair, like that he's had his hands in her hair, perhaps he's been holding her head while he's been kissing her. Like there's this, he's physically overpowering her. It is. It was very disturbing to really imagine myself into the situation this time with such vividness. And that's interesting that, that you're pointing to the fact that it's about control or the myth of control because of course you can ask anyone out on a date but you don't know how they're going to behave yeah it's a really disturbing and distressing situation i mean and how calm she is makes me very sad as well right that she's just like meh boy was mauling at me also she has a strategy she's like we can see him coming right like she is lining up her defenses right first of all she's escaped and now she's kind of like orienting herself in the room so that she can keep running away i mean it's it's really unpleasant it's absolutely awful and yeah we see here what we see so often 
right. in the real world, which is that she doesn't go and report it to Slughorn. Right. She could say, like, he just assaulted me. Can we kick him out of the party? Right. But there is this sense of, like, blaming herself of, like, I did this, which we know that just because she invited someone who she knew was sort of a jerk does not mean that she deserved this. Right. I guess just doing this as a sacred reading was the first time that rather than being mad at Harry, I had I had seen it as slut shaming when really what he's doing is he hates that this has happened to Hermione mm-hmm. and he's like looking for something that he can do to fix it that ends up being part of the problem, which I feel like I probably do all the time. I mean, the the final thing I might say just having been in that situation as Harry, I was holding Luna's hand. I pulled her away from that guy who wanted something from me towards Hermione. And then Hermione and Luna have this very brief interaction. But like Luna is there too throughout this whole exchange. And I wonder if that changes the conversation that Harry and Hermione are having because Hermione has just admitted in front of Luna that she's chosen McLagan to hurt Ron, right? Like there's actually quite a lot of intimacy being shared. I'm just taken back to this this vision of Luna as chaplain, right? Like that she plays this sort of priestess role throughout the whole thing where, you know, hopefully a chaplain helps people say what's true, even if it's hard. And there's something about Luna's presence, which always makes me feel better. And I, I just wonder if she's changed the conversation here in some way, just just by being there. Yeah, sometimes you really do need three people in order to feel comfortable, right? I mean, it's what we do with this text. Yes, exactly. That like triad Havruta thing of like a third thing being there makes it easier to look into the eyes of your friend and say like, I've just been mauled. Or just because there's a witness who's, you know, whether it's couples counseling or or, or other, you know, dispute resolution things, like just to have another one's, not even them saying anything, but just their silent presence and their like goodwill that's being given to you both, I think can sometimes allow for that kind of extra honesty. She's like an inverse mistletoe, right? Like McLagan has been using the mistletoe as a third thing to assault Hermione. And now Luna is like the kind of safety blanket to be honest and to protect each other. Well, thank you, Casper. Thank you for picking that passage. It's powerful. This week's voicemails from Naya Kelly. Hi, everyone at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Um, I have been listening for a while and I'm excited to reach out to you all for my first um, voicemail. I just finished listening to the episode on temptation um, where we were talking about the Gaunts, um, House of Gaunts. And um, Casper, at the end of the episode, you blessed Bob Ogden. And I'd like to add on to it, but um, I want to address one of the folks that you included in your blessings, including police officers. Um, In the last two days, um, Atiana Jefferson was murdered by a police officer in Fort Worth, Texas, as we're on the heels of Botham Jean's um, trial, with not his trial, but the trial of his murderer, who was also a police officer. Um, as a Black American living in this country, it is really hard to live. Um, and so I would like to add on to the blessing of Bob Ogden, because despite coming into a situation that was scary and he didn't know what he was getting into, he had the wherewithal 
to be able to recognize that um, pulling out his wand and blasting everyone in the space could have caused um, more harm to innocent people involved. Um, Botham was eating ice cream on his couch when Amber killed him and Atiana was playing video games with her seven-year-old nephew um, when her neighbor called the police for a wellness check. Um, so I, you know, again, want to extend um, my blessing to Bob Ogden for leaving, um, recognizing the scariness of the situation and knowing that he did not want to make a rash decision. But I'm excited to see you all when you all come to Chicago. And um, thank you all for having such a thoughtful podcast. Naya, thank you so much for that blessing. And oh, I just, I love how you found the way to bless Bob in, in that situation for doing his job, but doing it in a way that did not escalate and actually frankly saved lives because I think we saw enough in that scene that if there was any kind of sign of violence that it would have escalated. And I so appreciate your, your beautiful blessing and your, your call for us to look at what's happening around the country with police violence. I mean, both the cases that you point to are where people entered someone else's home, a black American's home and shot them while that person was doing literally nothing. They were just living and I so appreciate your your invitation for us to lift our eyes to look at that reality. So thank you for your beautiful blessing. And we look forward to seeing you in Chicago, too. Thank you. So, Casper, it is now our opportunity to bless someone. I am going to bless Jenny because Luna says about Jenny that Jenny stopped people from calling her Looney Lovegood. And... I just, Ginny is just out there fighting every moment. She is like not letting a thing slip by and she just must be exhausted. Mm. And so I want to bless her for being so relentless, even snapping at people for just calling Luna by a dumb name. She is such a fierce advocate and I'm so glad we're doing this podcast because I've always liked Jenny, but I have fallen head over heels in love with her. <laughs> so a blessing for Jenny and her just relentlessness. Mm. What about you, Casper? We start off the chapter in the transfiguration classroom as the, the students are learning to start kind of transfigure their own human bodies. And Harry has, has dyed one of his eyebrows. And when he speaks with Luna... She looks at it <laughs> and just kind of assumes that it's okay. And then when he asks her to the slug club party, she says, is that why you dyed your eyebrow? And then this is the moment which just breaks me. Should I do mine too? <laughs> just, oh, I can't get enough of Luna. She's just so game. She's just so game and so generous. And like, I want to look at the world in the way that she does of just like, yeah, like, let me join you in that. Let me be open, right? I just think there's such a generosity of spirit in her way of looking at the world that I think we can all learn from. So a blessing for Luna and anyone who's, who looks into the world with, with generous eyes. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. 
Our fundraiser for Races is ongoing. Please go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on Don't Be a Dursley. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming live shows. We'll be in Chicago on November 21st, Toronto on December 9th, and St. Louis on December 19th. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 16, A Very Frosty Christmas, through the theme of erosion with our very special guest, Terry Tempest Williams. Don't forget to check out Women of Harry Potter. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, associate produced by Chelsea Erson. Our music is by Nick Bull and Ivan Paisau, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. Special thanks this week to Naya Kelly for sending in her beautiful voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Bye, everyone. I feel like she would have chosen a nickname by now, right? Like she would have been Mildy or Roro. <laughs> Moldy. <laughs> Moldy Foldy. <laughs>